So is it really good to be good? Is it it really good to be good? A, A philosophy professor who blogged on the Oxford University Press site, he thinks it's good to be good. And so he wrote a blog entitled, 10 Reasons Why It's Good to Be Good. Number one, Santa Claus is why. Oh, never mind, that's wrong season, wrong season. Number one, because being bad is bad. It's good to be good because it's the only way to have a chance at self-respect. Because being good lets you see what is truly of value in the world. Because a recent study reveals that those with mixed motivations and what they do don't perform as well as those whose motivations are not mixed. Because being good means taking good care of yourself. Because being good means that you can be passionate and you can choose what you're passionate about. Because being good means that you'll be courageous and brave. Because being good means that you will be wise, as wise as you can be when you're old and gray. Don't say anything. Because being good means that we are lovers of the good. And if we are lucky, it means that we will be loved by those who are themselves good. And finally, because of one through nine, only good people can live truly happy lives. Now, I will admit that these reasons, some of them make claims that are very true. But I would argue that they are not really reasons to be good. And here's why. Because in each one of them, as you listened, the motivation for being good has you at the center. There's some benefit for you. Listen, God has designed us in such a way. You and me, all human beings, He's designed us in such a way that when we make ourselves the center of our lives, things are not good for us. Things will not go well for us. Lives will unravel. Relationships will unravel. So if some gain for yourself is at the center of your motivation for being good, then you will never really be good. On the other hand, when our focus is outside of ourselves, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, when He is at the center of all things, our lives will be good. So listen, we should be good people. We should do good things. But here's the deal. We must do good deeds for the right reasons. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning as we return to Matthew after our long absence back in November, beginning with Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And we found your place. Let's stand together so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. This is Jesus speaking on the mountain. The word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, 
that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now, once again, that you would be faithful once again to your promise. And your promise is to bless the reading and the hearing of your word. Lord, it's been read. It's been heard. Now we need you to add your blessing to it, Lord, so that we understand what your word is saying, so that we understand who it is that you want us to be and what you want us to do in this world. We need you to bless us with that understanding, and so we ask it from you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we have to do right things for the right reasons. Let's take that statement in its two parts and talk first about doing good things, right things, and secondly, doing them for the right reasons. First, we must do good things. Look in verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. So this word righteousness is the connecting word between chapter 6 and chapter 5. The last time we were in Matthew, back at the end of November, we considered Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 48 as a unit, and we saw that the big idea in that section of Scripture is living a life of righteousness. We saw that righteousness was bigger than Jesus' audience imagined. Because as Jesus told them, murder is more than just physically killing someone. Murder is also being angry in your heart. Righteousness is bigger than they imagined because Jesus told them that committing adultery is more than a a physical act. It's lust in your heart. And so on for the next four examples that Jesus gave to his audience. Because Jesus expanded their idea of what true righteousness is, then we define righteousness this way, if you remember. That righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, God's will, and God's coming kingdom. We said that righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, God's will, and God's coming kingdom. And so true righteousness encompasses All of who we are as people, the the entirety of our being, inner beliefs, loves, attitudes that result in outward behavior. So whatever it is that you and I encounter in the course of our day, it has to be acted upon righteously. The decisions have to be made according to God's nature, God's will, and in light of His kingdom that's coming. So we could say that in chapter 5, Jesus is addressing the heart in order to correct bad behavior. Then we come to chapter 6, and we could say in chapter 6, these first verses, that Jesus addresses the heart in order to correct good behavior. See, Jesus says here, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And so in this case, righteousness refers to specific action righteousness in the sense of 
fulfilling a divine expectation. That's what the word means. Which means God expects something from you and from me. And that's why some translations, some versions of the Bible, translate Jesus' words here as practicing your good deeds or your charitable deeds. So what we have to understand first and foremost this morning is that we must do good deeds. We must. We must do good deeds. Jesus does not say here, if you do righteous things, then make sure you don't do them in front of others. No. Jesus' assumption, what Jesus posits as a given for every person who loves and follows him, is that that person will practice righteousness. They will perform righteous deeds, do charitable acts. Look in verse 2. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy. Once again, Jesus assumes that those who love him and follow him will give to those in need. Now, you and I would never say this out loud. But sometimes I think that evangelical believers view righteous acts, good deeds, as optional. We're not like those Catholics who believe they can obligate God to love them and save them by doing the good things they do. We may or may not understand Catholics rightly when it comes to that. But if it is what someone really believes... That you can obligate God, perish the thought. Because we know that righteous acts cannot save us. We know that we can never obligate God. Because we know our Bibles so well. Particularly the book of Romans. Chapter 11, verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, there's a Presbyterian word. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so that tends to make us think that grace and works are mutually exclusive. Or even that they might be enemies of each other. We know that we can never obligate God. We're not up to the task. Again in Romans 11, oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to God that He might be repaid? For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. Amen. See, we can never do anything to obligate God. No one knows the mind of the Lord. No one's been his counselor. We're not up to the task. It's beyond our ability. No one has ever given a gift to God that could repay God for anything or that could require repayment from God. So, in some way, through some convoluted thought process, we believe we honor the Lord if we don't do good deeds. Lord, look, see, I'm not doing anything good because I know you're gracious and I can't do anything to earn my salvation. That's true enough. But what Jesus is talking about here doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. What Jesus is talking about here is how to live and how to flourish in his kingdom. 
And in order to do that, you must do righteous acts. You must do good deeds. Listen to Hebrews 6, verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Now picture yourself as that land. And you are just drinking up. Soaking up, saturating yourself through all the means of grace that God has given to you. Through the presence of His Spirit, through His Word, the truth of it, through the Christ that His Word reveals, through worship, you soak all that up. Soak it up like the dry land and you will produce good fruit, good works. Righteous works, beneficial to all those around you, and Scripture says that God will bless that. Hebrews 6 continues, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. See, it would be unjust, according to Scripture, for God not to see our works and not to bless the works that we do. And so it's not only sad, but it's also detrimental to each of us. And it's detrimental to the growth of the kingdom of God. It's detrimental to the care of people made in the image of God. If you and I believe right things, grace alone, faith alone, and then we retreat with those beautiful beliefs to our homes and our couches and Netflix and spend all our time all, our, all on ourselves all the while contemplating how good it is to be saved by grace alone through faith alone. Is that what God intends for His people, for you and me to do with these beautiful, gracious Realities, faith alone, and grace alone? No. That's why Jesus speaks here in verse 1 of practicing, practicing your righteousness. It means that we carry out a, a moral or, 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 or social obligation. It means that Jesus is obligating us, those he has saved by grace through faith to a certain kind of living of doing good deeds, not to earn our salvation, but as a response to His grace. The Apostle John, as an old man, elder statesman in the church, after years and years of following the Lord, uses the same word that he heard Jesus use on the mountain so many years before. And he writes in his letter, 1 John, If you know that He, Christ, is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Those good works show we are children of God. 1 John 3, 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as He is righteous. We do good deeds. We're being like Christ. 1 John 3, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. These are powerful 
endorsements from John that good deeds must be done by the believer. If you do not do them, you must question whether you are a child of God. Ephesians chapter 2 brings together grace and works so beautifully. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Is that good news? And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Is that good news? It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? That God has created you and me for a purpose. It's for good works. That He's already determined for us ahead of time. So I pray that this will be a doing year for Redeemer. I do. I pray that we'll go to work. I pray that we'll be doing good things for people who are created in the image of God. So much needs to be done. Not only in the world, but in this city. To mitigate the injustice that we see around us. We need to do something about it. So much needs to be done to demonstrate love and compassion and mercy. If we are to make disciples as we go through this world, as Jesus says we must do, it will require work. It takes work to connect people to God. To show them the fullness of who He is. It takes work To connect people to God's truth. It takes work. It takes investment. It takes intentionality for us to connect with other people. To connect with each other. We've got to do that. It takes work to connect with other people outside of our family. Who need our help. Who need our hope. Who need our gospel message. Listen, God has designed us. To do these good works. And He blesses us when we do them. He won't ignore our work. He won't forget it. Or act as if it is not important. It is important. Our work is important. It's important to God. It's important to the kingdom. It's important to your life as a believer in Christ. So we must do good deeds. Okay, have you got that point? (laughs) We must do good deeds. Now let's move on to the second part of our proposition. We must do good deeds and we must do them for the right reasons. That's the real emphasis of Jesus' teaching here. It's not on doing good works. He assumes that. Instead, his emphasis on how and why we are to do the good works that we are expected to do. And so Jesus instructs us in this by telling us what not to do. Look at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Isn't it interesting that doing good works comes with a warning? Beware! Beware! Be alert! Be on your guard! Jesus is sounding an alarm about good works. we got to be on our guard. 
whenever we're doing good deeds. Because Jesus uses the word in the present tense, it's, it's an indication that this being on alert is a continual, ongoing activity. It means that every single act that you and I do, we, we have to evaluate that act. Why am I doing what I'm doing? What is my motivation? According to Jesus, we have to defend ourselves from doing the right thing, the good thing, for the wrong reason. And what is the wrong reason? You see it in verse 1. It's to be seen by others. And so once again, what Jesus is doing here is he's getting to our hearts. He doesn't literally mean that no one can ever see the good thing that you do. Otherwise, what he said in chapter 5 that we looked at a few weeks ago wouldn't make any sense. In chapter 5, Jesus says, let your lights shine so that people may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So which is it? Do good works before people or don't do good works before people? The answer is both and either or. Some of your good deeds will be done publicly. People will by necessity notice them. Other good deeds you do will be done privately. So what matters, what's at issue here is the heart. What is the orientation of your heart and mine? Are our hearts turned in on ourselves? Are we seeking our own glory and praise for what we do? Or are our hearts turned toward God? Are you hoping that God will get the glory for what you do? Those are the questions that you and I have to answer. What's the motivation for what we do? And you can't just answer that question one time for all time. you got to answer it again and again and again and again. Multiple times in the course of every day. And you have to always beware because of this battle between self-glory and God's glory. Let me tell you, that is a hot battle. It rages all the time. God says, I will not share my glory with another. And he says that because he knows that you and I, we're glory stealers, right? We want to steal the glory for ourselves. And that's why Scripture so often speaks of this battle. Self-glory. God's glory. John chapter 12 talks about the authorities. Many of them believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Isn't that a sad exchange? Jesus for the glory of men. Galatians 1.10 For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Man or God. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
You are serving the Lord Christ. And finally, just one more, Romans 2.29. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not of the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, Scripture pits the praise of people and the praise of man against each other so often because it's such a battleground in our hearts, yours and mine. It's so tempting to do what we do to receive praise from other people. We crave that praise. We do, even if we don't want to. We crave it. None of us can deny that it feels really good to be recognized. It feels good to be praised. It feels good to be the one who's held up as an example of goodness or or whatever. But here's the thing, and we've got to know this. We will never satisfy that craving of praise from other people. The the hunger, the hunger of that, it's too rapacious for us. It's got to be fed, and it's got to be fed continually. Listen, last week's praise will not sustain you this week. And so your good work is easily forgotten. It's quickly forgotten because people are fickle. Have you ever noticed that? People are fickle. They have short memories. Have you ever noticed that? And so guess what? You're going to have to do you're going to have to do something else good and something else good and something else good because you need that praise, but it's praise that can never satisfy what your heart needs most. You can't get enough. You can't get enough recognition. You can't get enough applause. You can't get enough compliments. And that's why we're driven to work for more and more and why Scripture has so much to say about it. The Lord makes clear in these verses the exchange that we make when we seek praise. If you work for the praise of people, that's all you get. Look what Jesus says in verse 1. You will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Listen, the only reward that we're going to get is the reward that we know is fleeting. And when it's gone, it's gone. But if you do what you do, for the glory of the Father, the Father will reward you. So contrast the meager, fleeting reward that comes from other people with the abundant reward that comes from the Father. Jesus says later in Matthew chapter 19, everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or property, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. So listen to what Jesus is saying. We do a good deed, a righteous act, give up something for the right reason. We do a good deed for the right reason, and God rewards it with a hundred times what That act deserves. That's the heart of God. And it's full of grace. With God, it's never tit for tat. Well, you did this much. In return, I will give you the same amount. That would be right. And that would be reasonable. And that would be equitable. But God isn't interested in a strict payment. As if the act itself is the main thing. The act is not the main thing. The heart is, and the heart that does the good deed for God. God rewards that one who lives for the Lord's 
glory with a hundred times more than the investment. Does that sound beautiful to you? Matthew 25. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. And so what does the servant get in return for a few things? I will put you in charge of what? Many things. A few in exchange for many. And how about that famous uh, story that Jesus tells about the workers and, and the people who came to work the very last hour of the day. It's almost the clock. It's almost done. And they go to receive their payment at the end of the day and they get paid the same as everyone else. The master pays them for an entire day's work. It's the heart of God and it's full of grace. God's reward is far beyond our investment. God's reward is far beyond our investment because he is good and a gracious God. So you have to decide whether you will do what you do before people for their praise or for the glory of God. And the bigger question you have to ask yourself, and, and I have to ask myself, is why are you more comfortable living before the eyes of other people than living before God? You have to ask yourself why you think the eyes of people resting on you are safer than the eyes of God resting on you. Why do you think people are more compassionate and more loving in God? Why would you trust yourself to them? Are you willing to gamble that the tolerance we hear so much about these days is really real? What if tolerance actually disappears when the spotlight goes dark and people step away from the podium? Can you trust them to really be tolerant? Loving and compassionate when no one is watching and when there is no gain to be had and no agenda to push forward. See, I wouldn't take that risk. I wouldn't take that gamble. I don't believe that people are really, really that good. Instead, you and I need to be comfortable, really comfortable, living our lives before God. Theological term is quorum Deo, before the face of God. That means you and I are comforted. And we're not afraid when we read Proverbs 5.21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders his path. Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. I know the first thing that I think of, probably the first thing you think of, we think about the eyes of the Lord being on us, is our sin. We don't want the Lord looking. We don't want the Lord watching, seeing. But listen, we need the eyes of the Lord on us. We need the eyes of the Lord on us. It's our only hope. It's our only hope is, is for the Lord to look at us. And here's why. Because the Lord has gospel eyes. And when the Lord looks on us as He does, He looks at us through Jesus. And Jesus is perfection. He did perfectly righteous deeds. He died on the cross. A righteous act in accord with the character and the will of God. He rose from the dead. And the resurrection gives us hope for the future. 
for our future resurrection and for the coming kingdom of God in all its fullness. And His righteous act was done out of obedience to the Father. Therefore, God highly exalted Him. Remember, men put Him to death. But God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He righteously obeyed for the glory of the Father, and God richly rewarded Him, and so He is our example as well as our Savior. And He's our hope. We must do good deeds for the right reasons. For the glory of the Father. And doing everything for God's glory changes everything. It gives us so much freedom to go and to do. When we do what we do for the glory of God, we don't have to worry about the results. And by results, I mean what other people say or think or how they react. It doesn't matter to you if you're doing it for the Lord, if they're grateful enough or if they notice enough. Or if they pat you on the back enough, who cares? Not your motivation. You don't have to wait for a reaction. (laughs) See me? You aren't waiting for anything from anyone because you do your good deeds, because God has given you grace to do them. You came to Him. You and I came to the Lord with nothing, empty-handed. And the Lord gave us the cross of Christ. He said, here, take it. That's grace. You and I came to Him naked and He clothed us. That's grace. You and I came to Him foul and dirty and He washed us. That's grace. You and I came to Him weary and He gave us rest. That's grace. He freely bestowed His grace on you and me. And now we freely give it to others through our good works. So let's do those good works. We must do those good works. We must do those good works. And we must do them for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray now that you would help us understand your truth rightly. Lord, yes, may we glory that you save us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period. Thank you, Lord, that that is true. Thank you that you have given us salvation so rich and so free. Now, Lord, make us faithful in living out those truths. Lord, because of your grace, may we be gracious people filled with a hunger and a desire to to do good things for your glory. May we even see our time as a gift from you. And Lord, may we Use our time wisely. May we not ever grow weary in doing good. Father, you have people for us to bless. You already know it. You have people for us to bless in this church and in this community. Through good deeds that you've determined that we should do. Now, Lord, may we eagerly seek what those deeds are. And may we do them for your glory and for the growth of your kingdom and for the advancement of the gospel here in Charleston. Lord, a city that so needs grace, that so needs the gospel. Encourage us to do those good deeds for your glory, realizing it's all of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.